Magyana Timirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chaksurun Militamena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Namo Mahabhadanaya Krishna Prema Pradayate Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namne Gaurat Namaha Bharagya Vidya Nidabhakti Jogam Shikshartam Eka Purusha Purana Sri Krishna Chaitanya Shariradari Kripam Budhyayastvam Maham Prapadye Chaktivara Sudhus Chattisurepsita Raja Lakshmi Dharmishtarya Vachasa Yadagadaranyam Mayamrigam Daita Epsita Manbadhavada Vande Mahapurushate Charanara Bindam Vande Mahapurushate Charanara Bindam Vande Mahapurushate Charanara Bindam Suvarna Varnai Mango Varnangas Chandanagadi Sanyasakitsamasanto Nishtashanti Parayanaha Tapta Kanchana Gurangi Radhe Vrindabhaneshwari Prashabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Pranamami Hari Priye Radhe Vrindabhaneshwari Good evening, everyone. Very honored to be here, Joe. Thank you very much for your invitation. Apparently, you're an acquaintance of one of my students from another Buddhist setting in Asia, in India. No? That's what I was told. I thought that the two of you met some somewhere... An airport in Bombay. Okay, well, there you go. In the chapel in the airport, right? The meditation center there. Any right, thank you very much for the invitation. A bit of a, um interfaith setting here, coming as we do from the Hindu uh, side. That said, um, it's uh, very clear that the Buddha was a Hindu, and he has got my back on that. Um, Historically speaking, as you may know, when the um, uh, before India was a republic and uh, uh, consisted more of independent uh, uh, monarchies, uh, all uh, uh, drawing their social and uh, spiritual perspectives from the uh, the Vedas. Vedas, uh, of course, constitute the most voluminous body of sacred literature on earth to date. And um, at any rate, the invaders, India's been subject to quite a few of those invasions, as you probably know, that at the time um, that the word, the term Hindu came about, um, considered the people on the other side of the Indus River Indus, and Buddha was uh, on the other side. 
so he was a Hindu. Hmm? <laughs> and of course, the Hindu tradition uh, holds a very uh, honored uh, place for the Buddha, uh, the original Buddha, uh, considering him one of the uh, avatars. Avatara, Tara means to cross, and Ava means to cross, well, avatar to cross from up to down. So some type of a divine uh, dispensation, manifestation within time and space that is meant to take us beyond the limits of time and space. Whether you want to call that nirvana or there are many names to uh, refer to, we'll never get to that. But um, at any rate, as I'm pointing out, the, uh, the Hindus uh, hold a, uh, in, in some respects, uh, a very high uh, idea of, of the Buddha, even while the two traditions were in. Um, conflict with one another over metaphysical issues and whatnot. But the Hindus are quite accommodating, of course, and the Dalai Lama has his place in, in, Indu, in India uh, as, uh, as a result of their uh, generosity being in exile and so forth from the Tibetan side of Buddhism. Of course, they realize there are as many strands of Buddhism as there are of baptism, uh, Baptist Christianity, I suppose, and, and beyond here in the South, in the Bible Belt. Um, and so it is with Hindus as well, of course. Many different uh, perspectives within the Hindu uh, con- conglomerate, if you will. Um, but um, in other ways, also, I think that the Buddha was uh, very, very Hindu. Um, one of the ways in which he's thought to be, uh, one of the fundamental ways in which he's thought to be different in his teaching, Gautama Buddha, Siddhartha, from, um, from the Hindus, is his rejection of the Veda. As I said, the Hindus were a body um, of people who derived their social norms from sacred texts along with the application of reason obviously in terms of time and circumstance in other words they were they had the uh, the idea that that dharma that the world uh, had meaning had purpose dharma is a, is a term that is just pregnant with a sense of purpose meaning um, uh, What's the? At any rate, um, um, and um, that uh, purpose for humans, purpose for full world, and so forth. The purpose for full world was supposed to be something that was realized. Its purpose in the human form of life where we have the power, of course, to reason. And um, <clears throat> and so they, 
uh, in conjunction with revealed insight as it was thought. Hmm? They reasoned according to time and circumstance and took moral principles and then formed them into moral laws of the time. The point being, of course, that moral laws are subject to change, but moral principles are not. In other words, they had the idea that there is an actual good and an actual bad, that these these things were ontologically grounded, hmm? which would make for uh, reasoning that was worth um, engaging in. In other words, if our actions cannot be termed good or bad by any ontological grounding or rooting, then neither can our thoughts. Do you follow me? Hmm? In other words, from the materialistic perspective, hmm, we are simply a a conglomeration of uh, dust in the wind, to use a quote, an old song, uh, so to speak, that has no you know purpose uh, unto itself. Um, you can't call the wind good or bad. That's a we might, from our human perspective, because it blew down our house, we call it a bad wind. Um, but the wind inherently itself is not good or bad. And if we are no more than that, then the good and bad are only human right and wrong are only human constructs, constructs of the mind. They don't really exist. And my point being, if good and bad, right and wrong don't actually exist, if the world does not have a purpose, hmm, there's no actual right or wrong action, then there's no right or wrong thought either. Hmm? So within materialism, which people reason about, there's not much of a place for reason, to be honest with you. Hmm? So at any rate, they Hindus, they, they uh, derive their sense of good and bad from these texts were thought they thought to be sacred, thought to be something that were uh, uh, insights arrived at through inward meditative movement by which sounds which were already existing could be heard. Just like it's thought in mathematics, since there are two schools of mathematics, one in which it's thought that humans con- construct um, equations that then explain some things about the natural world. And another school of mathematics is the Platonic uh, side, that uh, the equations are embedded in nature and they're discovered by humans. Hmm? There's like a code that ex- it's discovered. So uh, from the Hindu perspective, through inward movement, hmm? meditation, insights were derived and sounds were heard that, uh, that you couldn't hear unless you were uh, traversing on the inner uh, landscape, so to speak. Just like we can't hear the dog whistle, but the dog can. Hmm? So they could hear sounds as to the purpose, the meaning, and then these were expressed in what we call the Upanishads. Hmm? The, words, the word Upanishad means to sit near literally, to sit near. The implication of it being, if I want to tell you something that's not for everybody because 
not everybody's going to understand it or is not interested, I'll say, come, sit close and let me tell you something, whisper something into your ear. Secrets. Hmm? Hmm. Um, so Upanishad, sit near, at, so th- then these insights were expressed, right? So the Hindus, they had this great uh, sense of, uh, of, of uh, uh, faith in such inward movement and, and what would come of it. Because, of course, they saw in the persons who went inward an outward, objectively observable character that was, well, supernatural, because it was buddhic, buddhic, if you will. It was, uh, if you think, and we should, that the Buddha was someone who mastered the human passions. Fair enough? That's supernatural, right? That's like unbelievable. They say about about Christ that he that he rose from the dead, and that was a miracle that was sold all over Europe and and so forth that shut down all the other miracle factories and soothsayers and uh, shamans and so forth. Like you can't compete with this miracle. He died and came back. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I'm simplifying here and, and uh, generalizing, but it's, it's been marketed to with a lot of success. Um, and who knows, right? Well, there were some witnesses, a dozen of them. They wrote about it, you know. Okay, so some people, of course, in the Christian world, they very put a lot of invest a lot in the, into the historicity of of Christ and the, the fact, the tangible fact that. Uh, it's thought that it was witnessed that he died and came back. And, you know, okay, that's a belief, really, right? It's fine to believe that, and there could be good results from it if you follow through and and become Christ-like. I mean, that would be the ideal, right? But I like to think of it, whether it's true or not. There's something else that's unbelievable in a positive sense, and that is that he said, and of course I just believe this, on the cross that that forgive them for they know what they do. Now that's unbelievable. That is transcending the human passions. You know, if you're going to, somebody's going to nail you to a cross, you're not going to think too kindly of them. Hmm? Unless you've risen above friends and enemies. Um, um, and um, um, avarice, lust, greed so on and so forth. So these are, you know, there's a lot of talk about enlightenment, what it constitutes, um, you know, and it can get very physical, metaphysical and abstract at times and so forth, but to kind of simplify it, it comes down to something like this. The ability to harness the human passions in great measure. Hmm? Hmm? I mean, if you want to know about the mind, some people, of course, we mentioned materialism, think there is no mind, there's only a brain. And they would like to tell us that their, their particular opinion, physicalists, let's say, naturalists, that, that the mind is only a brain, that there's nothing that, other than the physical. But they, as far as I know, there's no such person in that school of thought that can sit which seems easy, but it's pretty hard to do. 
That's all the Buddha did as he sat down. It's a pretty simple process. There's a saying when I was a kid, and some of you as well, don't just sit there, do something. Of course, now they say, don't just do something, sit there. Hmm? And that's a little harder, right? Maybe we'd think it'd be easy to sit, but you got to get up. Because there's a thirst, right? The Buddha taught, Trishna, there's a thirst for things, desire. Hmm? So it's driving us to move in relation to things that don't endure. And that's a recipe for suffering. Hmm? Right? Krishna says the same thing in Bhagavad Gita. Dukkha yonaya yabhate. He said, the attachment to things, and extensions of those things, is the womb from which suffering is born. And it is very hard to get away from that truth. It's very simple. We can say it a thousand times, but to live it is another thing. To live that is to really transform your life substantially. Hmm? So to enlightenment, you know, and without getting too metaphysical about it, it is about rising above harnessing the human passions, lust, greed. People say, what's wrong with lust? Well, it's a, you know, kind of a dissatisfied condition to be in, obviously, right? Hmm? And you've got to be pretty busy on account of it. Uh, it tends to turn into something that was made out to be more than, than what it is. Greed. Um, I mean, these are the problems in the world. So spiritual practice, whether it be um, experiential Buddhism or Hinduism, meditations, sadhana, practice, uh, to use a Sanskrit term, spiritual practice, the kind of thing that Merton, the Christian uh, Catholic uh, theologian, thought he could maybe find in the East and incorporate into the practices of Catholicism in the West, Thomas Merton. He was right. They've got some method for this, for looking within to find all that, uh, that, that, that lies therein, in the world of value, quality, rather than the world of quantity, of speed, you know, velocity, depth, weight, uh, all these physical uh, measurements of the stuff, um, we could get preoccupied with that and lose sight of the measurer. Hmm? What gives value, quality, meaning, purpose? What makes the wind good or bad? That's a value uh, judgment, right? Hmm? Coming from what we would say in the Hindu world, from consciousness. We don't, for example, if we are asked as Hindus, do you believe in a soul? We, we don't think of it like that. We would say, do you believe in consciousness? It's a dumb question. Hmm? Without consciousness, we couldn't be asking the question or attempting to answer it. Hmm? So, of course, I believe in it. It's not a question of whether you believe in consciousness. So then there's a question of how you will define what consciousness is. Hmm? Right? And if you try to reduce it to something that's going on in the brain and keep looking for it, you're going to be looking for it for a long time, for a physical thing, a brain, a physical thing, which is non-experiential in nature. 
follow me? In other words, this floor, as far as we know, is not experiencing the fact that we're we're sitting on it. Hmm? Right? I mean, isn't that what it's about? There's what's out there and who's 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 looking at it and wondering what it is. And getting enamored by it and losing sight of his own position as the observer and what that means in comparison to everything that's out there that gives everything out there meaning without which matter doesn't matter. How, how rich then hmm, is the life of the observer un, unattached to matter or attachment to matter causes us to identify with it and, and think that the constraints of the physical world uh, pertain to ourselves as well. Hmm? And that the forces of the material, of, of matter, the forces of our tongue to taste um, that that is in conflict sometimes at the end of the meal with the stomach's urge to eat. Hmm? problem. These are the masters that we serve, so to speak. The urge to eat, the urge to taste, the urge to procreate, the, uh, uh, the, the, the wanderings, the, the force of the mind, and so forth. Thoughts, well, that's thoughts and things. To go beyond thoughts and things, or to go beyond thoughts about things. And think about the thinker, hmm? which could stop you from thinking altogether, hmm? and afford you a, a means of knowing that transcends what you could know with the, with the mind alone, its limitations and so forth. So meditation about arresting the mind, right? And then the senses will be arrested, and then there's objective, I want to say, evidence of the supernatural. Now, that's not really a great term for Buddhism, but um, if you look at it metaphysically, but I'll get to that in relation to Hinduism. In other words, just to be brief on that for a moment, the Buddha did not talk really very much, if at all, about the question of what is beyond his method of ending the obvious problem of suffering driven by desire? Hmm? So the problem is big enough to just focus on dealing with it, and I've got a method for dealing with it hmm? that can solve it. And it's almost, from the Hindu point of view, if there's something more beyond that, well, you, you, you'll, you'll get to that then. But focus on the... So, with regard to questions of God, for example, or the Atma, which is a big term in Hinduism, consciousness is the Atma, the self. Hmm? It's a self that's different from the psychological and biological construct of a self. Material ego. Ego means identity. So, there's an identity, a sense of I, that we are kind of centered on that is derived from our sense of my. 
I think this is mine, this is my country, so I am an American. This is my state, so I am a South Carolinian. This is my religion, so I am a Buddhist, or I'm a Christian. This is my husband, so I am a wife. This is my, all those my's make up our sense of I. And the fact is nothing is ours. So the I that derives from that really doesn't have a lot of standing. Hmm? But that's our, our center, so to speak. And that's the problem because we all have these different centers derived from a false sense of proprietorship that inevitably put us at odds at some level with, with one another. Hmm. So, the Buddha was focused on, let's just destroy, deconstruct the false self. That's the whole problem, that, that construct. Hmm. So, method for... But whether they're, who's doing the destroying or, uh, he kind of didn't want to get into that. I'll, 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 I'll talk a little bit about that. And, uh, the Pali Canon says some things about that of interest and it can help us bridge a gap between Hinduism and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Buddhism. But the point I'm making is that the Hindus, hmm, they had confidence in the the revelation of the sacred text, given where it was coming from, in other words, character, um, tell it to the president, but, uh, you know, is important. Hmm? When I was young, that's what I used to think. I was When I was young, I went to Catholic school, and um, I thought I should be a priest when I first understood religion. I thought, well, you should... I'm kind of a you know fanatic, I guess. I'm going to go all the way with it, right? So I thought, I guess that means you should become a priest. You know, so my parents said, no, no, it doesn't mean that. You know, they're okay, but we just see them on Sunday. So, so, uh, but at any rate, um, that thinking was um, shattered, uh, not really by my parents or others, but by the character of. Of some of the priests in the boys' school um, that I was in, uh, I was personally un- unaffected, but others were not. And so I thought, this is like you know, they, they, they say one thing, but your your character is something else. So the character matters, right? And this is just not a Catholic problem. This is a problem everywhere, unfortunately. Um, and we see it, it's not just a religious problem, we see it in the secular world and realm of politics and so forth. And we've got a prime example. So, um, so character matters. So, in other words, they, their faith, okay, and we're going into this, well, this subjective, you know, faith, can't see it, but I'm supposed to believe in it, I'm not so sure. But they had faith in what they could see. Why they had faith in the texts is because they saw who the text was coming from and what was their character. Hmm? And they saw in the character, objectively speaking, of the persons who shared the insights that became the Upanishads, they saw in them the ability to harness the human passions, to sit and be. 
without trying to become something. Hmm. I was speaking about the mind. So a materialist may try to tell us that the mind is a brain, and it may be a good argument and so forth, but can that person, materialist, sit down and concentrate his mind on anything for more than five minutes? Maybe, maybe ten minutes. Maybe fifteen. Let's take that and compare that to somebody who can sit in a cave for thirty years. Maybe that other person, that latter person, knows something about the mind, even though it may contradict your particular interpretation of scientific data. You know, it's, you can't get away from the subjective. It's pretty hard. Whatever you unearth historically as a truth is nonetheless subject to your, well, subjective interpretation of the, of the data and with sodas, with scientific facts and so forth. We interpret them in a particular way. And if it works pragmatically, not necessarily answering the big questions, who am I, why, I mean, not, not, not necessarily making even better people, but if it works pragmatically to keep things going, the economy or some gizmo, some gadget or whatnot, or go to the moon, it's a pretty big accomplishment. Why criticize that? The question is, what will you do there? <laughs> what are you looking for? Hmm? What were you looking for? We've already kind of thought about it for a moment. You might do more and it might cost a lot less to look with inside. Hmm? What's in there? Well, that's hard to do. Well, it was hard to go to the moon, but you did it. <laughs> right? It cost a lot of money, too. Hmm? And people were critical. And some people say you didn't go. And, and uh, So... But to go within, hmm? it sounds easy. It's an inviting prospect, but it's a challenge because we've been outside, so to speak, attached hmm? to things and thoughts about them and the identity that arises from them, which is changing. Now I'm this, now I'm that. Even within this life, I was a child, I was a daughter, now I'm a mother. Hmm? Right? I could have been a man, I could have changed my sexual uh, uh, orientation, gender. Hmm? I could change. I could decide. I'm going to Canada. Hmm? Become a Canadian. Right? It's possible. <laughs> so all these things can change, right? We think I am this or I am that. This and that always changes. But what doesn't change is you can say I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that. But this and that is changing. What's not changing? I am is not changing. That's the only thing we really know, that I am. We don't know if you are, <laughs> but we know. We think, yeah, maybe, but I am. Hmm. I am. Hmm. What is that? that? That's a huge, this is the, you know, this is the uh, um, very small word, I. It's made up of one letter. It's the most used word in the whole vocabulary of any language and the most misunderstood. We use it more than any other and we understand it less than than any other. I, what am I, what is the I? So these Hindus, if you will, these persons who 
kind of like translated these sound equations, formula, sound formulas, mantras of the, of the Veda. Hmm? And they had a character that caused the common people to have faith in them, a character that convinced them that there was something beyond the can of the beyond the mind and and the eye, so to speak, to life, and it was really what was worth pursuing. They were ready to, to orient at least their life towards the invisible, if you will. But but they had point being objective reason to go in that direction because of the character of the persons revealing, sharing the knowledge. Hmm? Hmm? We cannot objectively in a scientific laboratory validate the subjective experience of someone accomplished in meditation who says, I went there and this is what I found out. It's like this. We can't verify that subjectively, but we can see their character. And if their character involves the ability to control the mind, maybe they know something about the mind when they say, the mind is like this, the brain is like that, in a broad way. They're not going to tell you, this neuron, that neuron, because they're not looking at matter with that kind of microscope that those who think everything is in matter will find it there. They got a broader view of the material world. They call it samsara. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's full of moving, changing parts, constantly in flux. Hmm? We identify with a particular configuration at some point, and that's the whole problem. Hmm? Then we suffer. So we didn't need to examine it in all kinds of detail to draw interesting insights about what you can do by putting it together this way and mixing this with that. and and as I say, exploring the outer landscape. I mean, from our perspective, we've done that. We've seen the world underwater. We've seen it high in the sky as an aquatic. This is transmigration, of course. Hmm? A subset of reincarnation. We've seen it as a bird. Hmm? We've seen it on four legs, we've experienced it. We've experienced it with no legs and with a thousand legs as a centipede. Hmm? Now we have human life. What do we have? We don't have a thousand legs or arms. Hmm? We don't have big teeth or claws. We're not as fast. Hmm? But we have, we have, we have, we have another thing. We have something else which is both a burden and a solution to our problem. We have a question. And the question is why? Why am I? Why? It's a purpose question, not a how question. How to eat? How to protect yourself? And run away. Right? How to mate? How to get a good night's rest? To eat, sleep, to mate, to defend? These are all how questions. The answer to which is built into nature. If every species has it, the questions are pretty much answered. How does a skunk defend itself? But doesn't have to go to school. Just lifts up his tail whenever there's danger. Hmm? So in human life, we also have 
answers to these questions. But the really the way to perfectly answer these questions of how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate and defend is to answer the why question. Because if we be preoccupied with the why am I hmm, and realize the why, meaning, value, purpose, is not quantitative. It's not coming from the physical world. It's coming from consciousness. Then I have to turn inward. And when I turn inward to pursue that um, value center, if you will, then the need to eat, the need to sleep, the need to mate, the need to protect oneself is, is so diminished because your, your, your pursuit is... You're, 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 you're traversing, as I say, in the inner landscape. And you've got to eat something, too. And then meditate. And what could it, it might fall down right, right there without having to move as possible. You can turn the whole world. One who really goes within, the whole world will start to work for him or her. They said, that if you love someone, they'll tell you all the secrets. You stop trying to take from nature, exploit her for your mentally conceived purpose and values. Instead, let go and go within. Find the, find the. Let's say, from a Buddhist point of view, do away with the, the false self, get to the no, no self, no ego. We'll go on from there, but. Get there, and nature. You'll be. You will tread. In order to do that, you have to walk very lightly on the world, right? Look at the eight noble truths. It, it constitutes leaving a very light footprint, isn't it, on the world? You're not, it's not. A, it's not about taking, hmm? exploiting, in, as you move. As you sit, so so you move accordingly. Move in such a way that your sitting will be facilitated. Sit in such a way that when you walk, it will be in the world, but not of it. The of it is to be a taker. Because if you're attached to a certain configuration of matter, of nature, and think that's yourself, you have to defend that. Hmm? And, this yet, and others are doing the same thing. Therefore, you have to be a taker. And if you're taking, if you're hunting, well, you're also being hunted. Hmm? You have to look over your shoulder. Hmm? And the Buddha won't have your back in that situation. Hmm? No. That's, of course, the whole idea of karma. You've taken, now you owe. Hmm? You're in negative numbers. The Buddha says, come to zero. Sit, come to zero. This is a positive sense of zero compared to negative numbers. Hmm? You don't owe. You're not a taker. You tread very lightly on the world. Point being that if you relate with nature in this way, rather than taking from her, maybe she has some secrets she can share with you. Those sounds, like I said, hmm? from the Hindu perspective, the secret that nature holds is that it has a soul and it's you, a unit of consciousness. That's hmm? not that uh, uh, can be that's that's not constrained by time and space, but by attachment 
within time and space, thinks it is and functions accordingly with fear. Because that I, the false I, is threatened with non-existence every day, every moment. Mm. It's not comfortable to live in fear. And on a metaphysical level, you know, however comfortable we make ourselves and how big, how big of a fence we build or whatnot, there's some fear. Hmm. I've got to get up and work. I've got to do something. I might not. Uh, the world's working against that eye. There's a, there's a struggle. Hmm. We should give up that struggle. We don't have to struggle in that way, hmm. is the point. So, These Hindus, they had this confidence, let's call it, hmm? in seeing the character of these sadhus, these rishis. Rishi, drishya means to see, seers. They were seeing things that others couldn't see, and they talked about them. And it kind of, and how would they talk about? Them? How would they? It, they're they're talking about something that's beyond language. They're trying to get you to think about something that's beyond thought. So the way in which it's spoken about is very abstract. Hmm. It doesn't make it less important or less truthful, but how can you convey... It's one thing to convey a simple scientific fact, like if you touch fire, we have some data, you will get burnt, even if you think you won't. Okay, well, that's pretty easy to talk about, pretty easy to think about, and it's pretty easy to experience. But that which is beyond language, beyond thought, beyond word, how to how to then try to bring it to someone who is a thinker, a talker, uh, who tends to be guided by reason? How to translate something that's transrational into a rational explanation that's compelling enough to get us to take up a transrational method like meditation? It's not irrational, but it's not a rational exercise. It's a transrational exercise. Hmm. So one of the, the main way in which the Hindus were compelled to embrace this kind of idea, again, was by the character. Because example, as we say in English, speaks louder than precept. So the example of these sadhus, even though they talked in, I don't know what the guy's saying, but I'm not sure, but... I want to. I want to stay around him or her. They got something. They got a glow about them. That's. They're not taking from the world. There's nothing you can give them. They don't have any want. They have no desire. What? What? What have they found? So we just imitate what they do. They sit. Okay. Well, sit. I'll try it. <laughs> Gradually, you get some little experience. You can then you can, you can talk about it within certain circles, right? Where it can it can make make connection with others about it, and then get strength in numbers to pursue the challenge, the great challenge, right, of per- the pursuit of enlightenment, the pursuit of truth, ultimate truth, the capital G good, absolute good, that transcends the small g moral good that at best people are pursuing in the world and fighting over what it is. Hmm. And it's so relative because you press down here, it comes up over here. You press down here, and it comes up over there. What the Buddha talked about is a comprehensive solution of the whole problem. Hmm. 
not a temporary solution here. Press down here, it comes up here, press down there. Mm-hmm. Right? So the Hindus, they have their Buddhas, if you will. <laughs> they have their enlightened people also. And they have the same, they exhibit the same characteristics of the Buddha in the basic sense of being in control, having mastered the human passions. And having mastered the human passions, one can, interestingly enough, actually become a lover. Sounds backwards, but because the human passion for love and romance, let's say, making the world go round. But if you conquer or master, harness, let's say, the human passions, you can actually begin to become a lover because what the human passions really are about are about, about, about taking. We don't feel whole, so we need another, we think, to add on to ourselves, to make ourselves whole. We make a bargain. I'll take from you. You take. I'll give to you. Give it to me. With kind of a deal, um, especially after the infatuation stage is is gone. Um, but but the, there's this kind of ordinary love. There's ways to talk about that that are very positive, of course. And so for the moment, I'm talking about it in comparison to universal love, universal compassion. So the Buddha had universal compassion. So, arguably, he was a lover. And we think of him as a Buddha, as a thinker, or a, non, or a knower, let's say. Buddha means to intelligence, right? Buddhi, a knower, beyond thought, knowing, beyond thinking. And what did he know? Well, it kind of shows he knew how to love in a very basic sense, but in a broad sense in a sense that transcends all of our little loving, our loving our children, our loving our our husband, our our loving our wife, loving our parents, loving our country, hmm? loving our planet. hmm? Because if you love the United States, well, you might not love some other country. At least that's the way it seems to play out, right? I mean, love and hate in this world are two sides of the same coin, just how you look at it. Look at it here, it's love. We look at it from the other side, they hate us. This is a problem. So this is a small idea of love. We could try to make the best out of that small idea of love and try to move from it in the direction of real love. But the Buddha exhibited this, right? That's why, I mean, he's a compelling person. Obviously, I know there's thousands of years of tradition and different types of Buddhas and and here, whatever, is he Theravadans here? Is it so? Theravadans, so. Okay, so, but still, just kind of going to the original original Buddha. Um, The idea is he was compelling. He had universal compassion. So in a sense... He was more than a knower, he was a lover. Hmm? He had started entering a realm where love was actually possible. It was love without any looking at the other, from any side you looked at it, it was love. Okay, then he's got it. 
if you look at it from one side it's hate, the other side it's love. I love you means I love my kids. I don't necessarily love yours. They're okay sometimes, but so this is this is a so he had love from whatever side you looked at it. That's valuable. We often don't think of the Buddha as a lover, as a or as a knower, but he was, I would say, entered into a realm where there was a possibility of absolute love. So, despite the metaphysical arguments between Hinduism and Buddhism, for example, over the centuries and uh, and uh, between other traditions as well, um, these are typically more arguments that um, are the preoccupation of those whose orientation to a particular tradition is not centered on the heart of the tradition itself that derives sub- the substantial result of, of uh, let's say, the knowing of mysticism, the loving of mysticism. Hmm? Uh, so there's a, and when I'm saying there's a, there's a religious orientation to Buddhism, there's a religious orientation to Christianity, there's a religious orientation to Hinduism, and then there's a mystical orientation of these traditions. Now, the, in a religious tradition, you get the Crusades and, and the warring factions between Hindus and Muslims, and the British helped out with that and so forth and, and whatnot. But among the mystics themselves, they may debate about what the nature and how to talk about that experience is. And you say it's like this, and I explain it like that, but they're typically not at one another's. Uh, throats, hmm? and also their approaches to harnessing the human passions, arriving at universal compassion, are slightly different. Huh? We we started our program tonight with kirtan. It's not something that's not like a typical within Buddhism. We might sit and do Om, you know, in Tibet or something, um, but. Um, It's different. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a lot in common, and then there's some differences. So they must come to a common ground that's desirable, that we could call enlightenment. A common ground that includes, again, in a very basic sense, harmoning, harnessing the human passions. I say that's supernatural. That's objective evidence. Of the supernatural, if you could if you could conquer over, harness the human passions, you'd be a very extraordinarily rare person. If you could control the mind, and sit for 30 years in a cave without any desire, maybe you know something about the mind, hmm? more than in getting a PhD in psychology, hmm? and you might appear dysfunctional from that point of view also <laughs> in the world. Hmm? Sometimes people think you are living your life like, let's say, uh, for something other than in the immediate here and now what you can see. Some, you know, you're going to miss out on a lot. That's really a, a misunderstanding. Hmm. You're missing out <laughs> on a lot. You're missing out on a, 
on the whole, like I said earlier, I mean, what, what's, what's more valuable? That which inherently has no value, matter, physical forces, or that which makes matter meaningful, ourselves, something within ourselves, hmm, that qualitative feature, consciousness, for example. So, so in Hinduism, we have our Buddhas, is my point. We have those who can share notes with the Buddha, and you know, he, got, he could sit for a while too, <laughs> and so forth. Now, one of the metaphysical, then, differences between the Hindus and the Buddhism is this, again, we touched on it earlier, this idea of self. No self, self, no self. Hmm? So, now, this is my, my thought, and this is, of course, it's very Buddhistic because the Buddha advocated to think for yourself and not, not, not just be intimidated by dogma and, uh, and so forth, right? right? So I can do that then. I can still be, I may be unorthodox, but then the orthodox, what is that, right? The Buddha would say, right? Buddha rejected some of the Vedas. That's one of the things that differentiates him from the Hindus. I talked about these Vedas, these sacred texts, and where the... But he really rejected a certain portion of the Vedas that talks about living in this world and material acquisition in a religious context rather than seeing through the falsity of material acquisition, rather than seeing that less is more. They thought more was less. So the Vedas are generous in which they... they, 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 they also offer information how or idea how to live in the world in a uh, and acquire with a license take with a license hunt with a license something like that so that you gradually be weaned from it he didn't have time for that the buddha okay. he wanted to immediately go to renunciation of things hmm? not to handle things in a certain way like in Nishkam Karma Yoga, you, you, you do the thing, but you're detached from the result. It's difficult. He just, he just wanted to sit, right? He had the power to sit. Hmm? Detachment, renunciation. Hmm? But the, the mystics in Hinduism, my point is, they also rejected this section of the Veda. Hmm? They, they saw it's useful for some people, but for those who have an appetite, for a comprehensive solution to the problems of life. You're not going to find it there. Hmm? Not just continuing the carrot. Yeah, move a little more and you'll be happy. Go to heaven and you'll be happy. Go Try to this realm, that realm. Hmm? No. To look within instead, rather than without. So there is a sector, and these are the mystics within Hinduism, that also reject this portion of the Veda. And then when you go to the Upanishads that I mentioned earlier, those texts, there you find discussions about meditation, inward trajectory and so forth, that we can see it's very much, you're starting to get close to Buddhism now. It's starting to sound similar. And then there's this big word, Atma. It's a small word, really, Atma. But it means self. And it, in Hinduism, it speaks about a self that is different from the self that the Buddha said we should deconstruct. 
You understand? The material ego, the identity that I said before, the I that comes from our sense of my, I think this is my house, my car, because it's my car, it's got a flat tire, it's a problem. If it's your, well, you know, it's too bad. Gotta go. Hmm? So, and they know, he's a Plymouth. He's a Mercedes, the corporations, they know, right? They know your eye, so they advertise accordingly. He goes here, he goes, they got their data. But this is all about the false self, right? Buddha said this, this false self should be deconstructed. No self, no self. So it seems to be in contradiction to the Hinduism idea of an atma, a self. But that atma and its pursuit involves de- the same deconstruction that the Buddha is talking about, of the psychological, biological, physiological sense of self, which is a thing that's constantly in flux and changing. Hmm? They posited the Hindus that this atma is the observer of the ever-changing material phenomena. By focusing on it, you can sit and watch the whole thing go around and not be part of it. To be in it, but but not of it. But now the Buddha is experiencing and exhibiting the qualities of enlightenment and saying nothing about Atma. And the Hindus are talking about there's Atma, there's an Atma. Hmm? And there's a Paramatma, that's another subject. Hmm? There's many small Atmas and one big Atma. Hmm? This is theistic Hinduism. Hmm? Okay. The Buddha said, you know, when he was asked sometimes about the self, because they're, in, they're Hindus, as I said earlier, <laughs> they're on the other side of the Indus River, right? So the, the Brahmins say there's an Atma. What do you? What say you? He said nothing. Hmm? You can find statements like this in the Pali Canon. He didn't. He didn't respond. Hmm? There's many types, you know, there's a number of them. Now, they can be interpreted in different ways, of course, obviously, to say, well, he's really not saying there's an Atma, or he's really not dismissing, he's really not, but they could be interpreted to say that he, he, he did not dismiss the idea of an Atma, but he did not, as a strategy, think it useful to talk about it. Hmm? So rather than deny let's say, the Atma from an, from an ontological point of view, he denied the Atma or dismissed it or didn't talk about it from a strategical practitioner methodological point of view. In other words, if, if let's say I'm going to tell you, okay, look, what you, you are not what you think you are. You are not a man. You are not a woman. You are not this, that, and the other thing, right? All these things are just made up and here you have this false identity that's just a, a, a moment in the ever-changing flux of matter. Mm-hmm. And you've identified with it, and, and so you're having a problem. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a basic, I think, Buddhist idea. So, okay. Um, that's a lot to swallow. Now, I can reason about it. Well, the Buddha did. And he said, look, you're suffering. What's the cause of the suffering? Desire for things. The desire for things is, is creating an I, a certain sense of identity. 
Hmm? If you're happy, why move? If you're full, why, why, why move? Hmm? So you're empty. You're, you're trying to fill yourself up by adding things on, right? So you're suffering. It's hard to defeat this logic because you can experience it every day. Hmm? Attachment to things, if you get it, it's not over. You might lose it now. Hmm? So you got to worry about it. Hmm? One time a fellow gave me a ring. It was a yellow sapphire ring. To, from an astrological point of view, it was supposed to be worn on this, this, this the guru finger hmm, for Jupiter, right? So I accepted the gift. But then I found that it was worth a thousand dollars, and I thought, oh, I got a thousand dollars on my finger everywhere I go. I was like, I don't feel good about that, and I'm not a rich guy by any means, so I couldn't I couldn't continue to wear it. I thought I felt it was, it was causing me anxiety. <laughs> hmm. I was thinking, but he gave me a gift. What if I lose it? How will he feel? You know, I was feeling bad. <laughs> but anyway, you get the point, right? So it just um, it, it's a good point. As, as I said, the, putting it in Krishna's words in the Gita, the same thing the Buddha says is, Dukayonayevate. What? The attachment is the womb from which suffering is born. It's very difficult to get away from this logic. But it's also difficult to put it into practice. Hmm? It's a big challenge. So there's an argument to be made that the Buddha thought, enough is enough, let's just tell him this. Focus on this. Destroy the fault. Just deconstruct this false self through right livelihood and 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 so on and so forth. Deconstruct it. What about the but the Brahmins and the Hindus? They say there's an Atma. Let's not talk about that. They say there's a God. There may be there, man. Who knows? But this is for sure. We're suffering, and this is why, and that's for sure. So focus on this. So there's an argument to be made. That this is why the Buddha spoke in that way, and which apparently, metaphysically speaking, puts him at odds with Hindus. But if you look then at the Hindu saints, the Hindu Buddhas, let's say there, and the Buddhist Buddhas, they have the same qualities. Hmm? They must be drawn from the same source, right? To be able to transcend the human passions. If you say the Atma is false, that's also false. Then these guys that are meditating on how do they get the qualities that are like the Buddha? You follow me? If Buddhists want to be pluralistic, which would be something we want to do, probably, then we have to consider this 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 idea, because if we if we if we take that there there cannot be a self that transcends. The false self. Hmm? It's a complex and interesting argument and discussion, but just to say it like that, then if there cannot be, then you have you are rendering by saying that those who have Buddha qualities in other, for example, in the Hindu tradition, to be an illusion, but they don't have the qualities of anybody in illusion. They have the qualities of the Buddha. You follow? Hmm? So I, I've just um, not trying to be. Uh, adversarial. I'm actually trying to be <laughs> trying to be uh, uh, interfacing a bit here and uh, bringing us together on the idea of like we judge by the fruits, by the results. If we see character hmm, that 
that constitutes in a basic sense, you know, what is enlightenment? I'm just talking about it in a negative way. Well, it's not this, it's not that. Or to say it kind of, kind of positively, it's in a basic sense harnessing the human passions, and I mean completely, and the mind. That's objective. What that feels like, that's a subjective, that's another thing. It feels good. Hmm. That's why you can do it. Because it's a higher taste. Hmm. There's no happiness in matter. <laughs> and there's no love in matter. There's love in in Buddhism, right? By becoming a Buddha, you love everybody. And I would say this is the base ground of loving, compassion. And there can be developments within that, depending upon the discipline by which you pursue transcendence, which could be variegated in nature. In other words, you could become enlightened and exhibit the base qualities of a Buddha in Buddhism, in yoga, in esoteric Christianity, in Sufism. And you'd have the basic same qualities and basic same experience, but then a variegated experience beyond that within transcendence. Different, why not? Why transcendence cannot be variegated? If the paths to it are genuine and ego-effacing, to be genuine, and they're good at that, hmm? yet they, they, can they, the nuanced way in which they go about that ego-effacing can it not result in slightly nuanced experiences within transcendence. This is kind of a theistic perennialism kind of perspective that I share with you tonight. Thank you very much. Any question? I don't want to go on for too long here. What's the time? 7.15. You've been very patient. We have mostly Hindus over here and Buddhists over here. There's a Hindu there. There's a Buddhist over here. Neither one, huh? Okay, that's me too. I'm neither one. place in um, Taos around 1980 80, 80, something like that I spent there uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. and you have a yoga studio nearby maybe we can visit you sometime there yeah Can you talk about uh, 
Yeah, well, we could say something about avatar tattva. Um, from the perspective of our tradition, the world is something, the world of our, the physical world, the world of our sensual, mental, sensual, mental, intellectual experience is one that comes and goes like an expanding and contracting universe, let's say to use a scientific terminology or like something like a a multiverse string theory perspective or something like that. You can find this in Hinduism. And Buddhism, you know, really gets its description of the world from the Hindu Sankhya perspective and so forth. Um, So it's similar, but um, time is cyclic, right? Uh, Rather than linear. And so so with regard to that, the, the universe is something that expands and contracts, expands and contracts, and there's no beginning to those ex- that expanding and contracting. It's called anadi, beginningless, the beginningless cycles of manifest world, unmanifest. And what's driving the world is karma, so which means the desire of the of those in it, right? The atmas in it, they have desire, so they're driving it. And so it expands for some time, then it contracts, and the karma is, becomes um, kind of to, to in a restful state, but it hasn't been resolved yet, so it again comes out, and the universe manifests, right? So this is happening because the one let's say, the big atma, okay, the paramatma, let's say, the reservoir of consciousness. Hmm. Out of its fullness and absolute contentedness desires to become many. What I mean by this is that there's two types of movement. One type of movement is I'm moving because I feel empty. I feel I need more. Out of a lack in myself, I'm moving. There's another kind of movement, out of fullness. And you just, it's like celebratory type dance, right? We have a term for this in Hinduism called lila. Lila. It means play. Hmm? The play of the... Hmm? L-I-L-A. Lila. Lila. It looks like the karmic movements, but it's driven by a different force and motivation altogether. Karmic movements, we're moving out of necessity. I've taken, now I owe, so off to work I go. Or I've taken here, so someone's coming after me over there to get over my shoulder. This is it's, it's a it's a problem. The more I move, the more I it's like quicksand. The more you move, the more you go down. Something like that. Leela is another is a movement 
that is out of fullness, kind of celebratory. So the Godhead in Hinduism is full, complete, has no necessity, not lacking anything. Hmm? But that fullness results in, in a movement that, that constitutes a celebration of his fullness. Hmm? So the one becomes many, just celebrating his fullness, and there are all these small atmas. And this is, has no beginning in time. We have to talk about it as if we're by, limited by language. But the one becomes many. So there are these individual atmas, units of consciousness, ourself. And then there's the... So, But now, while the one becomes many, and the many are like the one, little units of consciousness that transcend time and space, their smallness and size makes them uh, subject to being overwhelmed by matter. Let me give me I'll give you an analogy. Let's say the Godhead is a fire. Is a fire, okay? So a fire has heat and light, which is very intrinsic to the fire itself. Hmm? That heat and light, in this analogy, constitutes light, knowing, and heat, feeling, love. So it's a, it's a fire of knowing and loving. Hmm? Okay? Now it also has sparks. They're like the fire, but they're also different from the fire. They're small. And the fire also has smoke, which is just kind of fire is illuminating and smoke is obscuring, right? What would be the right word? It obscures, right? So it's possible for the sparks to get in the smoke. And then their connection with the fire becomes obscured. So the one becomes many, but maya, it's called, or you know, let's say, to give it a physical term, matter. This is also one of the energies of the energetic, supreme energetic has energy, shaktis. Right? So one shakti is maya shakti. The, the objective world. Hmm? One shakti is the individual atma. I talked about the self, the jiva shakti. Hmm? Another shakti is this internal shakti that makes the fire have heat and, and, and light, and its own life in there, its own what goes on in there. That's something happening in the fire. It's it's like. We can't, unless we're fire, we can't know it or understand it. Mm-hmm. So, in this analogy, we are like the sparks, and when the one fire becomes emanates with the sparks, they can be obscured in terms of what their actual position is by the smoke. And so, seeing this, there's avatara. So the one 
then the Godhead takes a shape in this world hmm, to address the problem hmm, like the Buddha did. So we consider the Buddha an avatar to address the problem according to time and circumstance in the world in appearing in different forms and, uh, and and so forth. Some of the forms of the avatars are obviously uh, what might be called like mytho-historical uh, in time. We get to the Buddha, it's almost like a historical time, you know, I guess we can figure out that he was actually here um, and so forth. You move further and Christ becomes more of a historical figure or Chaitanya in our tradition, very historical figure. Um, and so forth, but but um, um, this is the general idea. So the the fire, the Godhead, being full and complete, right? At the same time, in order to be full and complete in love, has to that love has to include compassion, all kinds of love. There have been varieties of love. So compassion has to be included. But in order for there to be compassion, there needs to be a situation that requires it. There has to be samsara. Hmm? You understand? It's not that God created samsara so that he could be compassionate. These things just are. God, the God, it is compassionate hmm? because there is samsara. Hmm? We can only talk about it so much, but so they are sparks, okay, of light, like ourselves. We're in a smoke, and the avatar is a crossing from up to down on the part of the Godhead to exemplify what you could be and how you get out of the smoke hmm, and express compassion. So samsara exists so that the for the for the sake of the Godhead's uh, being compassionate. Hmm. How do you be compassionate to enlighten people? <laughs> There's no necessity, right? So, if the Godhead is to be compassionate, there needs to be a circumstance that warrants compassion. That's called samsara. So, to so move, he has his own circle. Libinus, so to speak, the Godhead, a circle of love. That's called lila. So, there's movement in there. Hmm? Is said every word is a dance. Every word is a song. Every step is a dance. What must be the singing? What must be the dancing? How to talk about that? Hmm? We can look. Let's say use a God idea. We, let's say in an analogy, God is the sun. So the general way to think about it is, thanks a lot. It makes my mind peaceful when you come out. It's a happy day. Hmm? And there's vegetation. And today you have taken some water and done with it, which I could never do. You have turned it into a cloud, and now you have poured it down over here. Thank you very much. Hmm? So we live with gratitude, right? Honoring the sun, what the sun provides for us. I mean, just, we, we just, you could go on and on and on about it. We don't think about it that much, but we should, right? Now, some person in all of this thinks, that's pretty cool, but what's going on in the sun? I'm looking at the sun in relation to my life and what the sun's doing for me, but 
What did he say? Think not what you, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Kennedy. Anyway, get the idea. So someone thinks, I'm thinking all the time what sun can do for me. What could I do for the sun? I mean, I can't think of anything, but I mean, it's an intriguing idea. What goes on in the sun? I see what the sun does here. But where is the center? Is the center here? Or is the center there? What are those nuclear explosions that are going on in there? What, what, what's the life in the sun? This is what Leela's about, to enter there. You can't say that much about it, but you can philosophize that, oh, there must be movement and transcendence. And what, what you call it play, dance, drama, uh, celebration. Hmm? And the avatars overflow of that. Hmm? into a world that's that's missing out on the party, so to speak, and suffering. So for compassion, the avatar. Therefore, yeah, Buddha is, is, is so much, for example, characterized by compassion. Does that help? It's a bit of a long answer, but it's a difficult answer in a short <laughs> shorthand at the same time. Okay, anyway, I'll thank you again. It's been very nice sitting with all of you. Appreciate your, your your time, your questions, the invitation. Hare Krishna, Sri Buddha, Dev Ki Jai, Bodh Premanandi, Hari.